Hello again, and welcome to another episode of the Uranium Market Minute. Today is Saturday, June 24th, and this is episode number 202. My name is Justin Hewn. I am your host. I'm the founder and publisher of the Uranium Insider Investing Newsletter, the only investing newsletter that focuses solely on uranium and publishes on a regular monthly basis. As always, nothing that you see or hear in this podcast is intended to be investing advice. I'm not your financial advisor. This is not financial advice. Please always do your own due diligence when it comes to investing and always take responsibility for your own choices. Okay, really great to be back with you guys again today. It has been quite a while since I last published. It's been at least a month, probably pushing closer to six or eight weeks, if I'm completely honest. I go back and look at when the last episode, number 201, was published. Much has happened during that time, and I'm going to cover some of what has happened in today's episode. Right off the top, I want to let you know that we had a great free webinar that we did about two months ago, pushing two months ago. We're going to be doing another one next week. So that will be Wednesday, June, let's see, Wednesday, June 28th. And if you are interested in joining us for that free webinar, click the link in the description below. In this webinar, we're going to cover basically a 30,000 foot view of this investing thesis. The timing for this webinar couldn't be better. Why? So much has changed in this market, and it's really, really important to understand the underlying fundamental developments, especially the physical market. I'm going to talk a little bit about the physical uranium market in today's episode. Hopefully, you'll be able to join us for that webinar next week. Click the link in the description below, and you'll be able to join us for that free webinar. We're going to do a deep dive, about 90 minutes, and then we're going to do a bit of Q&A as well and make sure that everyone who attends gets and understands the full thesis for this investment. And I think personally, this investment has been unbelievably de-risked over the past year. And going forward, we have a pretty remarkable setup for the commodity of uranium. That's going to be a great event. Please join us. Um, as always, if you have not yet, please subscribe to this channel, like this video if you do appreciate this content. And if you do like this podcast, you're going to want to join us for that webinar. All right, so we're going to go over kind of some uh, a summary of the uh, scoreboard as far as the spot market movement, uh, the movement or lack thereof of spot and the Zuri Invest vehicle. We're going to look at the charts, give you my technical assessment. We'll look at some weekly charts and zoom out a little bit more. And then we're going to talk about a couple of elements that I think are absolutely crucial to discuss right now towards the end of this podcast. And what are we going to discuss? Primarily, we're going to discuss the incredible thinness to the physical market. That is the most important thing that we all need to understand. We're going to talk a little bit about, about Kazatomprom and Russia. We're going to discuss how the Western nuclear fleets are continuing to be de-risked. And then last, we're going to cover a little bit of China and what has been reiterated and some developments for China that have happened since I last published. So when I publish as infrequently as I have lately, there's a lot to cover. So I'm going to do my best to cover this in a timely manner, but also want to make sure that I, I touch on these most important elements for you guys today. I also want to uh, try to publish more often. I apologize that it's been so infrequent, but I've honestly been unbelievably busy and I always have to give priority to our paying members. So the content there has continued to flow on almost a daily basis. If you are a member, of course, you know that I do the update videos almost every day and give the highest level information I possibly can to our paying members. 
So when I discuss the thinness in the market today, I'm going to have to pull back on some specifics that I do share with members, but I'm not going to be able to share here on a wider public format. Either way, you're going to have some great takeaways from what I have to share with you today. All right, let's just start off with the scoreboard here. Spot Uranium, U308, coming in at 56.50 a pound mid-market. Now, since I last published, what did we see? We saw about a 6 or $7 move up in the spot price in the last two months. We went to about 50, from about 50 bucks a pound all the way up to 57. I think it was 57.75 where we topped out last week. We've seen about a dollar pullback, a little more than a dollar pullback. As I expected and did flag to members, we're going to see a little bit of a pullback here, but we're probably going to see a higher low in terms of a floor. Very, very important to understand here is that this move in spot uranium over the past couple of months has happened with very, very little amount of financial influenced buying. That entirely has come from the Zuri Invest vehicle uh, that is uh, launching out of Switzerland. That has officially launched, I should say. They did their first spate of buying about a week and a half ago, moved the price up a little bit, but we saw a big move prior to Zuri even coming into the market. Now, the information coming from Zuri is few and far between. They are intentionally opaque, and I kind of love that. They are not telling the market how much money they have raised. They are not telling the market, hey, we're about to come in and buy some uranium. All we're going to have is NAV published on Bloomberg in hindsight, and as of now, that information is yet to flow. Zuri Invest, however, is on the scene, and they will be doing some continuous buying, dictated, of course, by the capital flows that come into that vehicle, just like we will see in any fund, SPUT, Yellow Cake, Zuri. Um, of course, we have ANU Energy set up in Kazakhstan. They are still in their initial stages of funding. They've raised $74 million in that first stage of funding, which happened quite a few months back. The second stage we are hearing is in the works, looking at $100 million. And we're continuing to hear whispers about a further raise, probably Q1 of next year, seeking potentially up to 400 million. They might come into the market with 500 million of purchasing in Q2 of next year when they IPO. Additionally, we continue to hear of more funds in the works. One of these funds should uh, be known in the next few weeks, potentially uh, as long on the long end, maybe a couple of months, but basically in the near future, this information should be out publicly on this next fund, and there are more coming. So going back to SPUT, closed yesterday at the end of the week on Friday at a minus 7.92% discount to NAV. That discount to NAV did start to close a bit over the past few weeks when risk came back on into the sector a bit. We saw a decent run in equities over the past few weeks. Late May into the first couple of weeks of June, most equities in the space had a good solid run up 15, 20, 25%. Um, we're seeing a bit of a pullback here as was, would be expected, but SPUT neglected to be able to get to uh, even trading at NAV. I think the best they they uh, they moved towards was maybe a minus two or 3% discount to NAV in this last run. We honestly believe that something is probably in the works for Sprott and this vehicle to alleviate the persistent discount to NAV that we have seen since early February. So we're pushing four months here at a uh, persistent and exclusive discount to NAV. It's obviously not something that investors want to see for this vehicle. So we'll have to see um, what they might have up their sleeve, if anything. Let's see. Sput Holdings remain stuck at 61.7 million pounds. Re recall that they entered uh, the entered the space 
with UPC's takeover, with UPC holding 18 million pounds of uranium at the time. So they purchased a lot of uranium, 42, 43 million pounds of uranium. The total NAV of SPUT sits, um, uh, SPUT's assets under management, 3.51 billion. Now well above the 3.39 billion that they had at the month of May, at the end of month of May. Sitting on a very small 14.9 million in cash at this point and unable to raise in this environment. So no more buying from SPUT in the near future until they can raise again. They're not going to draw that treasury down below 14.9 million with any further purchasing as of now. All right, let's turn to the ETFs. We have seen significant URA and URNJ inflows during the month of May into the first half of the month of June. URNM, however, for the month of May had significant outflows. They've had a bit of inflows for June so far, although the latest reporting was more outflows. On balance, we've seen north of 50 million in mandated buying in the last six or seven weeks. So we've seen some flows come into the space and honestly, most of the moves in the sector have probably been from that quote unquote flywheel effect, the ETFs buying uranium equities in the space. Although we did see decent moves of some of the smaller equities in the space that are not held by URA. So that is uh, something to note, but definitely when URA is buying, you can feel it. Everything across the board is green and the low float stocks that are held by URA move substantially, sometimes seven to 10% in a single day. And of course that knife cuts both ways. So when we see outflows, those holdings with low floats uh, do uh, tend to move down more than the, let's say the large cap stocks that are held by URA. Joint ETF assets under management now comes in at 2.53 billion, a bit over 850 million below the April, 2022 high print of 3.4 billion in joint assets under management. Pretty significantly lower, uh, still very surprising. We're seeing these prices for the equities, including the ETFs across the space, considering the constructive moves we've seen in the spot price. All right, why don't we go ahead and take a look at the charts. Starting off with URA with a pretty healthy pullback last week, 5.5% with the weekly candle closing basically at the lows of the week, a couple of pennies up off of the lows. Technically, very much intact, trading decently above that rising 200-week EMA. Uh, the short-term 50-week EMA is moving up, but the shorter-term 20-week EMA just crossed back below that 50-week. Still, we're trading above all of those moving averages, and we pulled back precisely to this downtrend line, however you want to draw it, right? Decently uh, pulling back to that trend line after clearly breaking up and out of that trend line. Uh, we did have somewhat of a rejection candle last week. That, along with the uh, very overbought conditions in the S&P, led us to believe we would see a pullback last week. We did get that pullback. This, of course, was flagged to members on Sunday of last week. And here we are. Now, what do we want to see going forward if wishes were horses? Some consolidation here. We'd like to see this uh, possibly grind lower, printing a weekly bull flag above that trend line. That's what I'd love to see. Uh, I don't really want to see a V-shaped recovery here. I want to see a healthy uh, consolidation above this trend line that has been resistance one, two, three times over the last year and a half. Now, breaking up and out of that on decent increasing volume, not major breakout volume, but decent increasing volume is what we want to see. So the previous three weeks, we saw a nice break to the upside for URA on increasing volume, a pullback last week on less than half of the volume of the previous week. That is what we want to see. 
for a continued constructive technical picture for URA. Cameco, of course, leading the charge across the sector. As Cameco goes, so does the sector. Generally speaking, this is a beautiful looking chart, an absolutely clear breakout of that lower trend line trading well above all weekly moving averages and a big pullback this week, almost 6%. Honestly, this probably is heading lower. We would like to see uh, this move back down and consolidate just above this trend line here. However, we are holding right about at previous resistance. So this is a technical place of support for the stock. Let's see if it holds here or if we see a little bit further of a pullback back down to this 28-29 level would be perfectly technically healthy for Cameco. URA compared to the S&P big pullback last week of over 4% to the downside on a relative basis with the S&P falling about 130 basis points. So a uh, decent little pullback here still well above this level that did show us support over the previous months and honestly over the previous year. Uh, so this level of support is very important to be held and perhaps we see a bit of more downside here on a relative basis compared to the S&P. I do expect this line of support to hold. Uh, even if we see a little bit more of a pullback on the S&P and we underperform the S&P within that pullback, that is probably going to be short-lived. I do expect this to hold. And honestly, if we made a higher low, that would be even better from a technical perspective. Looking at the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust also trading above all weekly moving averages, which are all moving up. This is a technically very, very strong stock. I would like to see this find support at a higher low. So higher than this $16 point. would love to see it pull, with the, pull back here, print a low somewhere around here and make its move back up and ideally break back up above this level of resistance that we've seen over multiple times. Looking at URNM, pretty similar picture to URA, although being a pure play, we did not see as strong of a breakout that we saw with URA. Why? In my opinion, the speculators uh, that are looking at options and buying call options for URA definitely increases the, uh, the buying that URA is doing. Market makers have to cover off. Market makers that sell calls have to buy long stock to be net neutral. That is why sometimes we'll see higher volumes, better liquidity, bigger moves up in URA, at least towards the bottom of, uh, of a, a move up. And of course, unless and until there is a robust move for the sector and risk is really on for uranium equities. For example, if we chart URNM compared to URA, we can see that when the risk is super on and the trend is really, really moving. So for, for us, that was December of 2020 was the initial breakout. And we had a big move up, a pullback, then Sput came on the scene and another big move up. So this is URA compared to URNM. Now, as we've seen mostly risk off, we've seen a general consolidation to the downside for URNM when compared to URA. URA. A nice candle that we printed last week, a nice hammer uh, on a relative basis. This would be a good sign if we did recover from here and move back up on a relative basis. We'll have to be watching that closely. Looking at URA compared to the metal itself, absolutely no uptrend here to really uh, to really note. So December 2020, if we go back to the beginning of this bull market, in my opinion, we're coming back here. We saw a drastic outperformance of the miners relative to the metal. And if we zoom out on this chart, it is quite profound. Basically, this move has not even started. I did highlight this in the previous Uranium Market Minute that we have a bit of a possible inverse head and shoulders on a relative basis. 
This is URA compared to the metal itself. Of course, we know the metal has been moving very, very nicely. This is an absolutely stunningly beautiful chart. From a technical perspective, basically my favorite kind of chart is a uh, ascending triangle type of move breakout. And that is exactly what we've seen. Now we should see a decent little pullback here. Maybe we've already seen that pullback. I honestly like to look at this chart as a line chart a little bit better than the, than the candle chart, um, candlestick chart. And let's look at the daily chart for this one for uranium uh, as a line chart. We can see this is a beautiful, beautiful chart. If we saw a pullback back down to 54, 55, that would be absolutely perfectly healthy from a technical perspective. Of course, nobody within the industry that operates within the fuel cycle is buying uranium based on some sort of technical chart. This is just for chartists to kind of geek out on. And for me, that is a stunningly beautiful chart. Okay. I'm going to try to be quick about these points because I don't want to get too, too deep into this. If you want deeper dives into what I'm about to talk about, join our webinar next week. So, uh, click the link in the, in the description below this video and join us. It's free. Uh, I highly suggest that you do so. I will be joined by my partner, Rick, um, and we are going to dive deep into uh, some of the stuff I'm going to talk about right now. How thin is this market? It is very, very thin, and that is something that is bandied about and has been for years, right? The market is getting thinner. The market is getting thinner. There's not a lot of uranium out there. There's no UF6 out there, blah, blah, blah. Well, let's get some evidence here. How thin is the market? Okay. Recently, there was a U.S. utility that put out a pretty chunky RFP. That's a request for proposal. They were looking for uranium in the form of UF6 or EUP to try to accelerate getting fuel rods for a life extension for their reactor. With this RFP that was put out, some players within the fuel cycle had to put out their own RFPs for uranium to feed through their services in order to respond to this RFP with UF6 or EUP. Those RFPs for uranium received less than half of the volume necessary to fill that RFP. Basically, their offers were extremely limited and insufficient to even fill that RFP to be able to respond to the utilities RFP. Why do I bring this up? This, from what I can tell, based on my own experience in this industry, based on my contacts in this industry that have been working in the industry for 30, 40 years, this is a first, okay? In the previous bull market, when risk was super on for the equities, when the utilities were signing high volume long-term contracts, when we saw the price for spot uranium and term uranium start to skyrocket, when we saw uh, the Cigar Lake flood uh, caused some utility panic, which, by the way, the price of uranium had already quadrupled off of the lows at the time of that flood. So that that market, that flood definitely triggered some supply concerns, but it wasn't the fundamental underpinning of that move, period, the end. Never during that period did we see RFPs go unfulfilled. Did we see insufficient offers for an RFP? By the way, the uranium RFP that didn't get filled was less than two and a half million pounds, okay? And that was for 2024, 2026 delivery. This is new. This is somewhat concerning and is absolutely concerning for utilities. This was the talk of the conference that recently passed in Slovenia. I'm going to share some more notes from this conference based on what was shared by some Chinese um, Chinese utilities uh, that were at the conference, okay? So this is new. This is new. We are, we are entering new waters here for the uranium market and the nuclear fuel cycle. Of course, this is 
completely being shaken up by the effects of the bifurcation in the market with Western utilities effectively avoiding new business with Russia. Are Russian deliveries still making it West? Yes, they absolutely are. Will they continue to do so? Probably, at least for the near term. There is legislation moving through the United States Congress that aims to cut off and sanction officially Russian uranium with a couple of caveats for waivers that utilities may or may not be able to access to receive deliveries, at least for the near term. That remains to be seen whether or not this legislation passes. I believe that it will. Um, and what that actually will mean where the rubber meets the road for any U.S. utilities that are uncovered for non-Russian EUP. Um, there's plenty of uh, Russian EUP on the books for U.S. nuclear utilities to be receiving going out for the next five years, okay? So this is shaking up the market now. Utilities are already stepping up to the table to with Western enrichers and saying, hey, what do you guys need to expand capacity? Why are they more concerned about enrichment than conversion? Well, conversion capacity is likely going to have to increase, and that is only going to happen when there's sufficient long-term contracts for nuclear utilities to justify doing so. That is happening, is moving that direction, but still, if you ask the converters where they're at in terms of capacity, they're going to say, hey, we're pretty full. We're pretty full capacity. We have a little bit of spot conversion available for the next few years, but mostly booked. Okay, Converdine can expand uh, the Metropolis facility, but that's uh, a decent chunk of CapEx, and they're also going to have to sign more long-term contracts at even higher prices than we're seeing right now. And they're high, right? Spot conversion is at 40 bucks a KGU. Um, term conversion is like in the high 20s. Very, very expensive. So when they can sign more long-term contracts at higher prices, we might see some expansion of conversion. But that's going to take probably a few years or more. It's very tight. Why the concern about enrichment? Well, without more enrichment capacity in the West, it's on the utilities to supply the enrichers with uranium in significantly greater volumes due to higher uh, transactional and operational tails assays. This, of course, is something I've gone into depth many times with our members in our webinars. We did so in just the most recent members webinar that was earlier last week. Um, if you are a member, you can go back and watch that if you didn't join us live for that. If you're not a member, you can access this for the quarterly membership and you can go back and watch that. This was a pretty high level discussion with my partner and we went deep into this as we have many times in the past. Higher tails assays, more uranium buying. Utilities know this, which is why they're approaching the enrichers saying, hey, you guys, what kind of contracts do we need to sign here to get that, uh, in, that capacity expanded? Okay, moving on. Kazatomprom pushes through a deal with Russia. So this happened, the, the news of this happened, uh, it came, to, came across our table, of course, three or four weeks ago. This deal happened back in December and it was super hush-hush. Now we saw multiple members of Kazatomprom's upper management leave the company in relatively mysterious circumstances. Um, they, of course, all of these folks said that the reasons were personal without getting into the details. Well, now finally we hear um, after um, Kazatomprom uh, reporting on their Q1 that this deal was pushed through by the majority owner of Kazatomprom, which is the sovereign wealth fund of the country of Kazakhstan. They own 70% of the outstanding shares of Kazatomprom. And they push this deal through. This is the Budenovskoy uh, six and seven blocks. This is a very, very large deposit, very large mine. 
in development in Kazakhstan, and 49% ownership of that got pushed through for Russia. Uh, this is a huge deal. This is something the market is not giving enough credence to, and it should be absolutely recognized. Um, and this is for two reasons. One, this furthers uh, furthers ties between Kazakhstan and Russia. Okay, During a time when all of the signs are pointing towards Western countries and Western utilities moving away from Russia as much as they possibly can, and Kazakhstan uh, now has pushed forward this deal. This is uh, not a good look uh, for Kazatomprom. This is not a good look for any of the JVs with Kazatomprom. They are such an important element of the production. They are 43% of global uranium production as of last year, probably going to be a little bit more as they expand production. They are going to expand production. They've already flagged that they are going to. However, that's not going to be a walk in the park. Most of that expansion is going to come from two mines. That is going to be the Budenovskoy 6 and 7. And I apologize, I'm forgetting the name of the other one. It's an Arano joint venture with the French. So these mines are going forward. They are going to bring on decent amount of capacity. Kazakhstan, uh, Kazatomprom is building, um, expanding on their sulfuric acid production. Although they did just have an accident last week, they actually had some employee injuries from a sulfuric accident, sulfuric acid accident. This is not a walk in the park for Kazakhstan to expand production, but we believe they're going to be able to expand it somewhat. They're already flagging that they want to go to 10% rather than 20% below their subsoil use agreements. That is going to be maybe an eight, nine, 10 million pound increase. Not going to happen next year. Probably going to be more like 2025 that we see that level of increase because they have to drastically expand their well field uh, development in order to see that increase. The well field development is ongoing simply to maintain these levels of production. So to increase that, they need more labor, they need more acid. These things are not easy to accomplish, but we believe they're going to be able to. However, more and more production coming from Kazakhstan is going to remain in the East. On that note, uh, China National Nuclear Corporation, CNNC, has engaged in a very large contract with Kazatomprom to the point where Kazatomprom had to float this to a shareholder vote in order to approve this deal. Why? Because cumulatively, the contracted pounds between CNNC and Kazatomprom following this deal would be, in theory, more than 50% of the book value of the, of the company. That's a large contract. We still don't know the details on this contract, but more pounds going to China. And of course, this very large new mine, half of that going to Russia. More and more of production coming from this absolutely vital producer is going to remain in the East, period. Big deal, you guys. On that note, another note from CNNC. In the conference in Slovenia that just passed a couple of weeks back, uh, CNNC basically reiterated that China is following through on their plans to reach 120 gigawatts of nuclear by 2030. Where are they now? 55 gigawatts. Okay, so that's more than a doubling of their existing capacity by 2030. In the next six and a half years, that is absolutely insane. So China, I'm going to bring up the numbers right now. China currently has, let's see, I think it's 20-something reactors under construction. Let's see, 23 reactors under construction. They have uh, 55 operable, operable reactors with just less than 55 gigawatts of capacity. Of course, they've got a monstrous amount of reactors that are in the planning, uh, let's see, planning phase. Operable nuclear reactors, 55. 
under construction, 23 planned. They've got uh, 45 planned, and uh, you might want to be sitting down for this, 156 in the proposed category. They are not slowing down with this. Now, he did reiterate that they are uh, that China's plan is to have a one-third, one-third, one-third um, uh, going forward for their supply. A third is supply coming from domestic, a third is supply coming from acquisitions, and a third is supply coming from contracts. So China is not going to be able to get one-third of their supply domestically, period, the end. That's not going to happen. Um, in fact, it's not even going to get close. They're not even going to get a quarter or even a fifth so they're going to have to expand more in terms of acquisitions and contracts. And now, obviously, I just mentioned this big additional contract with Kazatomprom. Um, and then acquisitions, they're going to be acquiring more projects. That's probably mostly going to be joint ventures in Kazakhstan. And of course, full project or joint ventures in Africa. That is historically where they've been playing. They are producing from the Husa mine from Rossing in Namibia. And I think that they are going to see some further ac acquisitions in Africa. So China not slowing down, period. All right. The last point I want to make here before we close off for today is that the Western nuclear nuclear fleets can, can continue to be de-risked as we're seeing massive build out in China and as we're seeing more and more supply risk. And the high level takeaway here is that the demand side for nuclear is relatively easy to model out. We can pretty easily tell you what the capacity is going to be this year and next year and the year following with a little bit of wiggle room from possible life extensions for possible decommissions. But it's basically the demand side is very static and growing. So it's stable. The demand side is stable. Not a lot of questions around the demand side. And the questions that are there are basically to the upside. How much demand are SMRs going to see in the next five to seven years? How much secondary demand will come from financial players? Nobody knows, myself included. And I'm telling you right now, the models that we produce and the models that other investing uh, specialist funds produce do not model, in, model out for SMR demand or secondary demand, okay? So they're just looking at actual structural supply and demand based on reactor requirements. Uh, trade tech is flagging. They expect to see north of 200 million pounds of cumulative demand for SMRs alone by 2035. Demand is stable. Supply is in question, and it's getting worse by the day, even though we are going to see uh, Kazakhstan likely increase some production. The Uzbeks are trying to increase production. The French are trying to increase production. It is happening, but it's going to be slow. It's going to be costly. There will be problems. There are mines, let alone uranium mines, mines, period, never ever come online on time and on budget. And this cycle is not going to be an exception to that rule, especially in such an inflationary environment, especially with major concerns about skilled labor. So that's the situation we're in. And uh, you know, a couple of examples of the de-risking. We obviously, we've talked uh, plenty about the Inflation Reduction Act in the US giving clean energy production tax credits to the nuclear fleet. Nuclear fleet in the U.S. is very de-risked. New builds in the U.S., that's a different question. That remains to be seen. France is doubling down. They are saying, yeah, our nuclear fleet is a, this is a non-starter if you're going to try to uh, 
influence us to abandon nuclear. We are remaining in nuclear. Not only that, but we are going to build out more nuclear. In fact, they approved 100 million euros to support um, the expansion of skilled labor in the nuclear industry in the country of France. Fantastic. They're also committing to six to 14 new EPR2 um, advanced reactors, um, large-scale reactors. Uh, these are European European pressurized reactors uh, in the country of France. That's a big build-out plan, and they are going to try to accelerate that. India just made a deal with uh, the Biden admin and with Westinghouse to build up to six new reactors in India. They have a pretty ambitious build-out plan as well. Those are just new builds, right? The de-risking, of course. Um, even Belgium is looking at life extensions for two of their reactors that were on the chopping block. But the supply is the big question. And you heard me talk about 10 minutes ago about how thin this market is. It is thin. And the primary producers of the world, the Kazatomproms, the Cameco's, the Uranos, they are basically sold out of uranium for the next few years. So we're going to see some pounds shake out as the price rises, but it's going to be insufficient based on the demand. We're going to see higher uranium prices. Does that mean we don't see spot market slip 25 cents next week or something? No, I'm not talking about next week. I'm not talking about next month or even next year. We're going to see on balance a sustained move up in the uranium price. That is what we're betting on. Of course, we're betting on the long term for that. I'm not making equities pred predictions for the next three to six months. Why? We're going into typically a slower period for the summertime, although this year could be different. Why? We were even being told this by the nuclear fuel consultant. They're flagging this to their readership, which are utilities. Don't expect the price to fall during this summer. There is no flex in the system and the demand is strong. And so this demand that has led to the spot price moving up six or $7 in the past two and a half months, that didn't come from spot, came from traders, came from utilities, even came from producers. That's about the, as much information I can give you on that front. Of course, I go a little bit more in depth than that with members because I think it's important to understand exactly who's doing this buying and who's going to be doing the buying going forward. And then of course, we are in year one of this contracting cycle and we're going to see multiple years for that. So this setup has never looked better. The market is thin, the demand is there. The bifurcation is uh, getting deeper, more pounds from the biggest producer in the world are going to remain in the East. And most of the demand is in the West. So very exciting stuff for this market. I appreciate your patience uh, between these episodes. Like I said, I'm going to try to get these episodes, episodes out more frequently. So thank you for that. Uh, thank you for your support. I appreciate you liking and subscribing. And uh, again, if you appreciate this content, join us next week. This webinar is going to be a, a good amount of fun here. It's going to be a live webinar, and we're going to go deep into even deeper into some of the things I talked about today. So hope you have a great rest of your weekend. Take care, and I will see you in the next Green and Market Minute episode. Cheers.